Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, in partnership with the American Thoracic Association and the Society of Critical Care Medicine, we'll focus on long COVID, what it is, its effects, and the challenges it presents to clinicians. To discuss this, our American Thoracic Association member, Dr. Vinay Gupta, and Society of Critical Care member, Dr. Megan Lane Fall. Thank you, doctors, for being with me. Dr. Lane Fall, I'm going to start with you. How would you define long COVID and how common in your experience is it? You know, I wish I had an answer for you. Long COVID is a syndrome that we're still trying to wrap our hands around. But really, it's a condition where people have a prolonged experience of COVID-related symptoms. What's so vexing about long COVID is that it's probably multiple different syndromes all wrapped together. So we think that there are some people who experience what we would call a post-viral syndrome, where people are very tired and they don't quite feel like themselves after they've had a viral illness. There are some folks who experience what we call post-intensive care syndrome or post-hospitalization syndrome, which is where you're weak and you don't quite feel like yourself after you've been through any acute illness. And that's where a lot of my experience is as an intensivist, as an ICU doc. And then we think there are some people that have almost a relapsing, remitting, sort of continuous infection with COVID that some people call long-term COVID syndrome, where they don't feel well, they feel better, they don't again, and it's this roller coaster of various symptoms. Most folks describe feeling really tired. Some people have a brain fog where they don't think as clearly. We know that some folks are breathless or they have really fast heart rate and their exercise tolerance is much lower than it used to be. And many people have other sort of related symptoms. So they may have rashes, they may have GI upset. And so we're still really trying to wrap our hands around exactly what this thing is. Now, you asked me how common it is, and I wish I could tell you. There's some information out of the UK that about 10% of folks at four weeks of infection after COVID experience some, some element of this. There was a UK COVID symptom study that put it at 10 to 20%, but I think we still don't know. It's, it's some important fraction of folks, but we're still trying to figure that out. And you're going to hear probably both of us say that a lot today is that there's a lot we're still trying to figure out. Thank you, Dr. Lanefall, for sharing your expertise. Dr. Gupta, I'm turning to you now. What are the symptoms associated with long COVID? Dr. Lanefall just touched on some of them, but are there varying levels of severity in these symptoms? I will say that I I constantly hear from patients, some of whom I've cared for in the ICU and others who just reach out, feeling really debilitated and often misunderstood because they're having new onset migraines or headaches that are severe. They're really fatigued. And previously, these are otherwise healthy individuals. And it's really frustrating. This sort of generalized fatigue syndrome is, is something that I hear often. People are just tired, as, as Dr. Lane Fall mentioned and they can't explain it. Often their lab work, they'll get tested, just a comprehensive workup, and really nothing presents itself as being abnormal. You have a chronic condition here, chronic fatigue gets likened to other chronic fatigue type syndromes. Sometimes that actually might rear their head after an infectious, an acute infectious process, say like Lyme disease, for example, where people 
often will have lingering symptoms for a period of time after the acute infection has receded. Things like fatigue, for example, this is, this is what I hear often, that I'm, I'm in bed for hours, whereas previously I was active during the day. So that's a big one. Brain fog you heard mentioned earlier, that's absolutely a big part of this as well. In addition to just headaches, I, I mean, I'm hearing a lot of, uh, of individuals that say that they're, they feel a lot of headache type pain, migraineous pain that previously was uh, not something they ever experienced, but confusion, uh, that this this just feeling of debilitation because of that, and then nausea, vomiting that often will accompany just your regular migraines. That's uh, that's again a big piece of this. I will say, as and this is me putting my my pulmonary hat on, a big issue here with any sort of post ICU post infectious process, uh, whether it's from COVID or some other uh, etiology, is the impacts that people feel from a cardiopulmonary standpoint. So, uh, and Dr. Lainfall mentioned, there have been a few studies, survey type studies done on survivors of COVID critical illness in, in places like Italy and the UK. And the rates of, uh, of, of individuals uh, endorsing that they had say shortness of breath or persistent cough at three months after discharge from the ICU is extraordinarily high. One in three individuals endorse having at least cough, shortness of breath, or fatigue. Uh, one of those three symptoms is, is present in over 90% of individuals in some of these surveys. All three of them, for example, present nearly one in two. And it's hard to correlate those findings specifically with diagnostic tests. So for example, if you have shortness of breath, will you pick something up on a pulmonary function test? Not exactly clear. Certainly there are correlations in spots, but we aren't seeing a clear trend in part because this remains an active area of investigation. But correlating qualitative symptoms, objective symptoms with findings on an echocardiogram or in pulmonary function tests or on a CT scan is not necessarily a given. That's, some, that's the frustrating thing here is that you can't actually pinpoint a reason necessarily by looking at a PFT study and then being able to reconcile or rationalize as a clinician, okay, I've seen this process before. I understand what this might look like. Let me prescribe pulmonary rehabilitation for this individual. The, uh, it doesn't, uh, long COVID does not fit into these neat buckets that, for example, other post ICU uh, clinical phenomenon may. So that's the challenge. And I, I hope as, as more individuals who are experiencing this continuum of sy uh, symptoms, as more of them assent to studies, as more of them enroll themselves in these post-COVID care clinics across the country, they're popping up everywhere. Uh, we have a few here in Seattle. I know they exist across the country. There's a great group, Survivor Corps, where I'm a medical advisor, that is doing a lot in terms of advocacy, heightening awareness for this, this spectrum of, of clinical symptoms so that people who, who are experiencing one of them don't feel like they're alone. That's really vital here information asymmetry and not feeling like you're alone. And once we, once we have more of that, more of that interconnectedness, more studies, more people hopefully assenting to studies, I think you're gonna see a better evidence base about what tests to get, what tests are useful, and then ultimately what services to provide, whether it's psychologists to provide mental health support because this is debilitating, whether it's to provide pulmonary rehab or some type of rehabilitation service, you're gonna see a little bit more of that interconnectedness and, and evidence-based guiding this discussion 
hopefully in the months ahead. IDSA and the CDC present the COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network. Timely COVID-19 information curated by clinicians for clinicians. Be the first to know. Visit IDSA's COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network for the latest COVID-19 resources for the frontline healthcare community. Go to COVID19LearningNetwork.org. Thank you for raising those points, Dr. Gupta. Who is at risk of serious or prolonged sequelae? And how, Dr. Lanefall, do we prevent or reduce the effects of long COVID on patients' health and well-being? So, Nadia, you're going to hear me say it again. (laughs) We're still figuring it out. What we know is that folks that already have pre-existing conditions are at risk of these sequelae. And it's likely because they're already starting off with some impairment. So if you have emphysema, you are likely likelier than someone who doesn't to have the persistent respiratory or pulmonary problems after um, having COVID. If you already have some cardiac history, then you're more likely to have the cardiac um, effects of long COVID. But beyond that, it's, it's hard to say. There are some data out of the UK that long COVID is more common in women than men. How much that's true and whether that's going to be borne out by the data we have yet to see I think societally, especially in in the U.S., it's a little easier for women to talk about their symptoms sometimes than it is for men to do it. So how much of this is an actual difference and how much of this is reporting bias is hard to say. In terms of preventing the effects of long COVID, I think it's very early. What I would suggest is that folks that are manifesting signs of acute infection, acute COVID disease, present for care if they need care. And it's been my experience as an ICU doc that sometimes people hold off at home and they're really not feeling good and they really can't breathe very well, but they just don't want to go to the hospital. And we know for folks that require oxygen, for instance, steroid therapy is really useful. And so what I would hate to see is that someone waited, a symptomatic person waited for a very long time to present when maybe we could have mitigated some of the effects um, if they had come in earlier, if we had given them the antiviral therapy or we'd given them the steroid therapy. So for folks that are in the early stages of COVID, I would say don't hesitate to present for care to get that support that you may need. In terms of the folks that have had this, that are living with long COVID, I'll have to echo what Dr. Gupta said, which is normalizing the experience is so vital here because so many folks have gone to either an urgent care clinic or an emergency department or their primary care provider and been told, there's nothing wrong with you. We ran all the tests. You are fine. But they know they're not fine. They're very clear on that. And so normalizing the experience is important. People have gotten a lot of support from social media groups where really they're just in a forum where People understand what their experience has been, and that by itself can be therapeutic. So I think that's that's a really important tactic to take to help support folks with long COVID. And then I I would echo again what Dr. Gupta said in terms of treating symptoms. So if you are experiencing breathlessness, um, pulmonary rehab may be an option. If you are experiencing GI symptoms, then there are medications that we can give to treat some of those symptoms. But I think we're still at a stage where there's so much heterogeneity, there's so much difference in how people are presenting, that it's hard to put together a cohesive package of what works for everyone. 
And as I look at these various clinics that have popped up, it tends to be that they're providing supportive care. And so they're giving that that moral support, but they're also saying, okay, let's treat the symptoms as they come and, and try to optimize the quality of life for people that are that are going through this. Most folks will get better over time. At least that's what we're seeing so far. Um, and so it, it for most folks, it seems to be an issue of supporting them as their bodies eventually recover. Excellent points, Dr. Lane Fall. Thank you. There are various recovery programs at hospitals across the country dedicated to treating those with long COVID symptoms. Dr. Gupta, are there effective treatments to hasten recovery? And is there special rehabilitation that may be needed for these patients? There is no specific medication that we can give an individual who is experiencing or say we would classify as having long COVID syndrome. And maybe I'll, let me just take a step back and say that one of the challenges of this whole continuum of symptoms and the syndrome that we're, we're calling long COVID is there is no clear set of criteria by which Dr. Lane Fall and I can, can look to and say, okay, this individual meets criteria, this individual does not. You know, often in, in especially intensive care, we, we have criteria and either the patient rules in or they do not rule in, like for example, for acute respiratory distress syndrome. Given that, that gray area, we can't look to a clear definition. There's a lot of heterogeneity about who, who are we saying actually might be eligible for care in a post-COVID care clinic that are popping up around the country. And let me take this chance to, to direct individuals if, if they're listening to this and have themselves uh, been afflicted by by this syndrome or have loved ones uh, that are looking for support, if you go to survivorcorps.com, you will find resources and actually a heat map for where you can find potentially a post-COVID care clinic near you. What I'll say is, uh, just going back to uh, the point on criteria and the lack of criteria, Dr. Lanefall has been, and been mentioning that we're learning as we're going because there's no clear criteria and because there's really no effective therapeutic, the, the most that we can do is really targeted supportive care. And so that is making sure perhaps early intervention with physical rehabilitation, maybe that's pulmonary rehabilitation if, if individuals are really experiencing a lot of shortness of breath, a lot of decrements in their exercise uh, and their exercise capabilities and their abilities just to, to do their activities of daily living. If they're feeling that symptom, if that's really what, what's causing a lot of debilitation, then, then physical or pulmonary rehab uh, would potentially be the way to go. Likely, these are individuals who would, who would then also get a pulmonary function test and would go down uh, uh, your usual cardiopulmonary workup. They would also need to get an echocardiogram, likely some chest imaging just to make sure you're not missing anything. I would also add a six minute walk test. So diagnostics to make sure you are not missing something in my view is vital because you need to treat this as a, uh, in some cases, if again, if somebody's coming in with chronic shortness of breath, dyspnea, cough, you go down that pathway and you treat it like you would otherwise treat any sort of chronic pulmonary type condition. And you, and you make sure you're ruling out other potential etiologies. So that's one. Uh, really, from uh, what I've heard constantly from individuals who are experiencing something on the spectrum of this syndrome, that psychological support, mental health uh, services, 
are vital because often what people will feel like others don't believe them that uh, that that they are feeling isolated because a test isn't turning up a an abnormal result for example people start who are experiencing the symptoms start to feel like they're alone that there is no explanation and that and that can be extremely debilitating and so psychological support mental health support uh, is something that i've seen um, being offered across the country at a lot of these covid care post-COVID care sites, and I, and I think that's going to be really important. But uh, to answer the uh, original question, right now, no treatments are available specifically to address this syndrome. I appreciate your insight on that question, Dr. Gupta. For this last question, I'd like to pose it to both of you. How important is the creation of patient registries and post-COVID care centers, as we just spoke about, for the long-term care of these patients in order to combat it? Well, I think I think it's everything, really. As Dr. Gupta mentioned, we don't have diagnostic criteria for long COVID. And to extend that, we, we don't even really have a way of noting in someone's electronic medical record, for instance, that they have this. There is no diagnostic code. So the way that we tend to speak in medical circles about diseases is we, we attach labels to them. We attach codes to them. It's how insurance companies get billed. It's how we do health services research. And there are no codes or designations for long COVID. And so the information that we have now comes primarily from research studies, and it comes from these social media groups. And so the creation of patient registries that allow us to keep track of folks, to follow them over time, to understand how their, how their experiences evolve over time is really quite vital. And it's why we've seen the emergence of multiple registries. We, Johns Hopkins has one. There are some in the UK. Um, they're, they're sort of all over. But I think that's going to be central to our ability to develop meaningful treatments for folks that have long COVID. And honestly, to figure out what it is, to get a better sense of, is it this and not that? Are there different typologies of long COVID? But the only way we get there is together. We have to build the science together. We have to build our understanding together. And I empathize with folks that are experiencing this. You know, I've had friends who've had post-viral syndromes before. You know, they feel dismissed. They feel as if no one's listening to them. And I can only imagine what it would be like to be experiencing that, where all you know is that it's different. You may not feel well. You may not feel up to yourself. But we need those folks to come together with us to help build our understanding so that we can hopefully... Um, develop treatments, or at least support folks that are going through this. I would just add that I, I do think because of this groundswell of, uh, of awareness that has been, I, I, we would have to credit these ad hoc groups that have, that have started. Uh, Survivor Corps um, is top of mind just because they've been doing a lot of work across the country, um, raising awareness about this, uh, this phenomenon. They've uh, networked across several academic centers all just trying to raise awareness. Uh, and now they're partnering with NIAID. And as I understand it, NIAID is really aiming to build these patient registries and an evidence base so that we can start to tackle this problem with, with hopefully more evidence-based guidance. And so this is happening in real time. I think it's important to remember that all the studies that exist now, outcomes studies on individuals who've had long COVID or experiencing these, uh, this, this syndrome of symptoms, we're learning as we're going just because they're actively 
still experiencing these symptoms. You, you know, the, the survivors who experienced long COVID were building that, that cohort, that study cohort in real time. And so it's going to take time watching and, and, and reassessing these individuals over the course of years to see when hopefully symptoms do resolve. Hopefully that's quickly within a few months of that, uh, of the acute illness, but it's just, there's a lot of uncertainty about that. And so these patient registries are going to be vital. And ideally, uh, we need an effort led by NIAID and NIH more broadly to, uh, to spearhead this effort so that if federal resources are needed when it comes to bolstering health systems across the country, bolstering these post-COVID care clinics and the services they offer, that'll be helpful for, for, for the NIH to take the lead on because then the crosstalk between what NIH is doing and the studies that they're supporting, and then ultimately how resources get delegated. There's a lot of synchronization there. And so if they can take the lead, and I know that they're, they're taking more of a lead as we speak, that will be helpful when it ultimately comes to what do we do ultimately and, uh, and when it comes to supporting health systems and these clinics. Excellent points from both of you, doctors. Any final thoughts? You know, I think we have an opportunity here. As devastating as the COVID pandemic has been, it has also shown us that when we all rally together around a common cause, that we can move forward much more quickly than if we work in isolation. And so I think there's an opportunity here for long COVID to bring together different communities that can provide input on how to support folks that are dealing with long COVID. And so I think in particular about the Society of Critical Care Medicine, of which I'm a part, we have a Thrive Collaborative that's all about supporting people who have survived critical illness. And while many of the people who have long COVID have not gone through an ICU, there's a lot that we already know about how to support people that have been through a very significant illness and that are dealing with the residua. Similarly, there's a lot that we know from our infectious disease colleagues about treating post-viral syndromes. There's a lot that we know from primary care colleagues about how to support people over the long term. And so what I'm hoping to see, piggybacking off of what Dr. Gupta said about the NIH taking a leadership role, is more effective bringing together of these groups. But, but we have this phenomenal opportunity to work together to make meaningful movement in a way that would be difficult um, if we weren't all experiencing it together. Let me just add that rehab is hard, whether you experience COVID in the ICU or, or whether you had the, the illness, but you didn't need uh, that type of support. You know, supporting individuals that have had a severe illness of, again, on the spectrum from, from mild to severe, once they're out of the hospital, we've never, we're learning how to do a better job with that as a country. Our health system is learning constantly how to provide better in-home support for those who need it. So whether it's COVID or not, whether we're talking about this type of issue in a pandemic or not, we have not yet cracked the code on how to, how to best provide rehabilitation services, whether it's mental health services or whether it's occupational or physical therapy, pulmonary rehab. These are, these are services where demand far exceeds supply, where there's never enough reimbursement for providers um, who are providing these critical skills. There's never enough people that are trained to provide these skills that are coming through the pipeline. There's a lot of demand and need for this set of services in the long term. These discussions on long COVID, hopefully, if there's a silver lining here, it's that uh, we will bolster 
rehabilitation services more broadly for the long term, because this is this is going to be a need that uh, is going to be long lasting, regardless of what the causative problem is here, whether it's COVID or not, in terms of people needing support at home over the long term. At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Lane Fall and Gupta for their time participation and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's real-time learning network, covid19learningnetwork.org. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast. I'm Nadia Singh.